Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Hello, I'm David Myers, host of Then and Now. I'm pleased to welcome today Professor Stephen Aaron, who has just retired from the UCLA Department of History to become the president and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West. Stephen Aaron has been on the UCLA faculty for 25 years, during which time he has taught and written extensively about the history of the American West. His first book was How the West Was Lost, The Transformation of Kentucky from Daniel Boone to Henry Clay, And since that time, he has established himself as a leader in this field with other books, including American Confluence and the American West, a very short introduction. He has also authored and edited a number of textbooks on world history. Steve has just executed a transition from the academy to the world of public history, for which he has been preparing for years. He was the founding director of the Autry Museum's Institute for the Study of the American West, And now he has succeeded the distinguished museum professional, Rick West, as CEO and president. We're delighted to welcome you, Steve, to talk about your vision for the Autry at this critical juncture in its history. But first, let's talk a bit about you and your scholarly work. So you are a scholar of the American West who belongs to a generation that reimagined the very concept of the frontier. I'm interested to know why has the American West so excited the imaginations of so many especially when it comes to cowboys and Indians. Well, thank you, David. And first of all, let me say how delighted I am to participate in this podcast, how excited I am going forward, even as I am departing from UCLA, departing sounds a little too strong, Uh, even as I'm separating from UCLA, uh, how excited I am to collaborate with the Luskin Center for History and Policy in the years going forward. Indeed, I should say, in my memorandum of understanding with the Autry, the one thing, I, one stipulation I had written in was to specify uh, continuing collaborations with Luskin Center for History and Policy because I think our missions so nicely align, and I hope that's something we'll talk about. In terms of the history of the American West uh, and why the West has held such fascination and power in the American imagination, indeed in the global imagination, and why in particular the frontier Uh, has played that role. Um, You know, I think in in the American imagination and even in historical scholarship, um, as the field of professional history was really getting started in the United States, and here I'm thinking back to Frederick Jackson Turner's seminal work on the significance of the the frontier in American history, um, the frontier experience, the experience of settling wilderness, um, of taming an uh, virgin land, Uh, that was what made America great. And the fact that it repeated itself as people moved across the continent is what made America great again and again. Um, And I think in a sense, uh, that's the way in which the story was largely told to generations of Americans. And it was consecrated in popular culture. Um, If the scholarly side of it, Frederick Jackson Turner gave us a vision, which we can talk more about, about why that vision held such sway for the better part of the 20th century, or at least for the first half of the 20th century in American historical scholarly circles. So too in popular culture, the Western um, 
tracing back to the Wild West shows of the late 19th century. And here I'm thinking in particular about Buffalo Bill, but uh, scores of other imitators. Uh, and then with the Westerns as a genre, both in literature and movies, and later in television, uh, the dominant re reigning role place it held. Um, you know, this was a way of ennobling the conquest of the continent. Uh, and that was the way the story was told in ways that was quite powerful. On the scholarly side, the frontier uh, in Turner's version, in Frederick Jackson Turner's version, um, nurtured American democracy. Um, it was the wellspring of the American character. It was the rugged individualism that the frontier experience uh, nurtured and nourished that helped to sort of make America what it was, separated Americans from Europeans in Turner's vision and gave the United States its distinctive democratic, egalitarian and entrepreneurial characters. And we might add libertarian sensibility. And libertarian. Or at least that's the way the story was told for the better part of the 20th century. Um, and so long as Turner's interpretation held sway both in scholarly circles and more broadly in popular imagination, uh, that version and vision of the frontier um, dominated. Uh, in the last decades of the 20th century, however, and this is the generation in which I emerged, um, that paradigm came under attack, came under assault. Um, and the old sort of version of the frontier, uh, the frontier got recast in Patricia Limerick's phrase as the F word, um, as you know, something that was an ethnocentric, outmoded concept uh, that um, basically uh, allowed white people to um, to to uh, to uh, erase uh, the problem, the deeply problematic history of their uh, expansion across the continent. So we have the iconic uh, frontier thesis of Frederick Jackson Turner from the late 19th century, the Wisconsin and I think Harvard historian. And it seems, if I understand correctly, that it held sway for a very long time, maybe almost a century, um, until scholars um, like Patricia Limerick came around um, to sort of dislodge it. Um, where do you fit in this story in terms of your own attraction to this field of study? Uh, were you drawn in by this sort of romantic image of the frontier, or was it already um, sort of the challenge to... Uh, the frontier thesis that captured your attention as a young scholar. Yeah, so I confess, I I did not start out to be a Western historian or a historian of the American West. Or is, uh, I really thought of myself uh, in graduate school as studying colonial America and early Republic. Um, and ironically, I did that at University of California, Berkeley, um, and then went east, took a job at Princeton University where I sort of discovered uh, what I sometimes call the Metroliner Corridor vision of American history, where everything that mattered happened somewhere on that axis between Boston, well, really Cambridge, New Haven, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Princeton, and so on down to Washington, D.C. And anything west of the Delaware River was sort of seen as some far-flung provincial experience. And in some senses, when I got there, I sort of said, well, it doesn't seem to me to make sense of the of the continental vision uh, and started 
Actually, the first time I, the first course I took in Western history was also the first course I taught in Western history. Uh, I had no graduate training in the field, but I emerged right at a moment where Western history as a field was in great ferment, uh, where uh, the new Western history that had arisen in the 1980s and challenged the old uh, paradigms, the frontier thesis, Turner's uh, sway over the field uh, was in full blossom. And I, in a sense, joined in to that blossoming, though coming at it from a certain sort of different angle of vision, because my own work fell out of what was then the dominant regionalist version. So I actually emerged as someone who, on the one hand, uh, came into the new Western history and certainly came into its critique of uh, the old sort of frontier paradigm, but at the same time, cast myself as a and got myself labeled sometimes as a neo-Turnerian for being a defender of the frontier construct, not as Turner imagined it, but as a um, but in a recast version that recognized the frontier as spaces and places where state authority was weak and where polities blended and bleeded into one another and cultures entwined and intertwined with one another in ways that created all sorts of interesting historical processes. Is this akin to the idea of borderlands in cultural studies, um, which are sites of convergences, one of your favorite terms, sites of meetings of different cultural actors and uh, uh, economic agents um, and and uh, sites of ferment, as you've just described? Um, yes, in many ways, um, frontiers and borderlands, as I've just used the term, got um, were treated synonymously. Uh, though in an article that I wrote with Jeremy Edelman in the American Historical Review that got, you know, that's certainly still at the end of footnote trails 20 something years later, um, that still starts a lot of footnote arguments anyway. Um, we tried to draw a distinction between frontiers uh, and borderlands. But again, I'm not sure that distinction matters so much for our purposes, even as it did for us back in, in those days. What does seem relevant uh, to your work and indeed your vision of the American West is the idea of convergence, um, which uh, you and the Autry describe as a way of seeing the large evolving story of the American West as an interwoven tapestry of cultures and peoples and a way of understanding how their stories are connected to one another. So how did you and you through your work at the Autry happen onto this idea of convergences? Well, certainly in both how the West was lost in American confluence, I had been deeply interested in the ways in which um, frontiers, borderlands of cultural interpenetrations, of mixing and mingling of peoples and cultures that created all sorts of interesting and new forms. Uh, the ways in which people borrowed from and in fear of one another uh, in these situations and trying to follow out that process. Uh, and the ways in which that sort of created a, a different model of colonialism. Uh, or how that altered and reshaped uh, colonial um, imperatives uh, as they met local circumstances. And so certainly from a scholarly standpoint and from a larger standpoint, I guess if Turner told the story of the American frontier as a singular thread, it seemed to me, and I think to a lot of other scholars, that the frontier was better reconceptualized in this multicultural weave, but more than just a multicultural weave, I think the construct of convergence, as you've just, you know, articulated, as we talk about, we talked about it at the Autry, you know, this notion of a 
interwoven threads, um, this idea of a tapestry that the, the cultures on frontiers, and I think more broadly in most situations, don't form themselves in isolation from one another. They form themselves in conversation, uh, in combination with one another. And I think the construct of convergence was my way of trying to get at really the intercultural dimension of the frontier experience, which I think we could read more broadly too um, into all sorts of global situations and became a centerpiece of the world history textbook that I co-authored, Worlds Together, Worlds Apart, the very title suggesting the ways in which cultures uh, connect and, and, and also retain their local arcs uh, in some way. And, and again, <clears throat> what I would say there is just uh, both in a local and a global context, um, I'm fascinated by that, um, by that weave. Right. So convergence is, um, sounds like a lovely idea and, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, a reasonable alternative to Turner's frontier thesis. But at one level, it would seem to apply a meeting of co-equals, of peoples possessed of equal power in particular. We know that the meeting at the frontier or the borderland was a meeting um, often defined by vast power differentials. Um, and we know that, um, in fact, the encounter between uh, Euro-American peoples and native peoples in particular in the West was a story of forced displacement, ethnic cleansing, and as our UCLA colleague Ben Madley writes, genocide. Um, so how does convergence allow for that very real, uh, very palpable power differential um, right. and the consequences of it? Um, a couple of, those are, those are vital questions. First of all, um, yes, there's no question that um, frontiers, th these are not kumbaya situations we're talking about. And I think that comes even truer when I start, when we start discussing, which I hope we will, um, my the book that I just completed, um, because I think that book also might be subject to that kind of re romantic misreading. Um, but I think in the case of frontiers, there's no question. Look, when we look at where the field of Western history has developed, uh, where the field of frontier and borderlands and Western history has developed, it's precisely those power differentials that have become so crucial. And the watchwords of the field, as you've just said, ethnic cleansing genocide, the one, the phrase you didn't use, but which is probably uh, paramount, settler colonialism. Uh, you know, these are, the, these are the, the, the things. At the same time though, I think historians of the frontier have accent, especially when looking at the North American interior in the 18th century and even into the early 19th century, have suggested that we maybe too quickly read Manifest Destiny backwards. Uh, that, that is to say, we treat the expansion of the United States as something that's manifestly destined, that's foreordained by the power imbalance between um, the British colonial power or, or other French and Spanish colonial power and indigenous peoples. In fact, in the 19th, in the 18th century, certainly, uh, this is an argument we made in terms of borderland situations where Indian peoples were able to play imperial polities off one another. Uh, in fact, Indians were able to do quite well in terms of balancing powers and keeping their own power and prerogatives in place. I would go, in fact, though, the literature is tilted even further. On the one side, you have people like Ben Madley um, arguing for the genocide of California Indians and arguing quite compellingly for the genocide 
uh, that took place in California in the decades after the discovery of gold here. But on the other side, you have hosts of historians, especially working in the 18th century and into the 19th century, who argue that, in fact, in the interior, it was Indians who held the who were the who held the greater power, and it was Europeans who entered and held that rather than the way maps often misdrew maps, the maps that European empire makers drew uh, were imperial projections that had little connection to the to the reality on the ground. Is I think the way many historians have reconstructed them that these were not vast swaths of European territory engulfing Indian countries. These were still largely Indian countries where little islands, little pockets of European enclaves existed often at the forbearance at Indian peoples who held the power. And it was Indians in the 18th century, in the interior at least, who were the more successful empire builders and expansionists. In particular, think of Pekka Hemelina's work on the Lakotas and the Comanches, but many other historians too, who've moved from talking about middle grounds to talking about native grounds. Uh, and so, one should be careful not to uh, write Indian power out of the equation too early. Uh, though by obviously as the 19th century progresses, the story does become one of displacement, ethnic cleansing, even genocide. Okay, so how does that sort of um, new understanding, that sort of new realism that recognizes uh, native agency while also taking stock of the displacement and violence directed against Native peoples, figure in your um, just mentioned forthcoming book, Can We All Get Along? An Alternative History of the American Frontier. The title, of course, calls to mind immediately uh, the famous line from Rodney King uh, from 1992. So why do you borrow this line uh, as inspiration for your book, in light of the risk of romanticization of the convergence at the frontier or borderland? So I should say right at the top here that the that first title is a matter of some debate at the moment with the publisher. Um, they think, can we all get along? Not only um, might be too romantic, but they think it's too Los Angeles centric, um, which shows you how East Coast publishers um, think about the world. Um, you know, they think, can we all get along? What does that mean in a sense? Whereas that that phrase, obviously, for those of us who live in Los Angeles or lived in Los Angeles, calls immediately to mind Rodney King and makes us think about, um, well, a moment when people certainly didn't get along. And indeed, a history that as it has been re rewritten, well, as it was written and rewritten, is one in which violence has long played a central part. Indeed, what would Westerns be without um, bloody gunfights at their climax, and what would Western histories be without, um, you know, without plenty of uh, ample blood shedding and eternal, seemingly eternal enmities between peoples? Um, that's been the central saga. Whether one treated that violence as ennobling uh, and what made America great, or as in more recent revisionist Western histories and Western cinema. Uh, was treated as something that uh, was disastrous for Native peoples in particular, and was uh, just sort of the uh, ushered the conquest of the continent uh, and the dispossession and genocidal destruction of Native peoples. Uh, you know, whichever way it's cast, still violence holds its centrality. Here in this book, though, I'm arguing the alternative history is referring for to what I call something outside the mainstream. 
the mainstream of that history is, is, is violent, bloody encounters. And yet, I'm arguing that there is, and I think it's important here, one, to talk about it in terms of what I call an adjacent face of frontiers. An alternative history of frontiers refers to an adjacent face, because it's not entirely existing on a separate plane. And oftentimes, the lines between the alternative history track and that mainstream uh, get kind of blurry, and the peoples go back and forth pretty quickly between that violent stream and this alternative stream in which at least peace and some degree of friendship can prevail between uh, erstwhile enemies. Now, I should sort of also make clear uh, that when I use the phrase alternative history, it too has created some confusion because I think when you Google that term, what you get is alternate history. You get a conflation between alternative history and alternate history. Alternate history is that genre of really science fiction in which historical outcomes are, are, are shifted or altered uh, for the purpose of sometimes useful discussion of historical issues, but more often or along the lines of how the Nazis won the Second World War is the most popular version of it. And actually second to that is how the South wins the Civil War. Um, and in there, I should say, alternate history and its more um, scholarly guys gets called counterfactual speculation, which economic historians in particular sometimes play. Look, E.P. Thompson referred to this genre of alternate history as, and I tend to see it the same way as, uh, quote, unhistorical shit, uh, unquote. Uh, and E.H. Uh, Carr, I think, famously referred to it as a parlor game. Uh, you know, it's a trick that you can play, but it really doesn't get you very far. It's the sort of thing that you discuss in bar rooms, but you don't really take out of the bar with you, not just serious scholarly discussion. My alternative history is not alternate history. Alternative history refers to history outside the mainstream, but history that actually happened. The episodes that I'm looking at in my book are episodes in which people, against their prior experiences, find ways to get along uh, with people at who, with whom they had often been uh, in bloody war. I also, to get away from the romantic construct that this sometimes lends it to, as I say, this is not about creating a kumbaya colonialism in which people sit around the campfire singing songs together. Um, these are often, well, I should say, and there's a, a genre here that I also distinguish my alternative history from, which is what I call wishtory, um, the history that people wish for uh, collectively. And this sort of, and then they create these, again, uh, disnified uh, historical fictions. Uh, mine is not that. I'm just wondering, um, as we sort of make a transition from the then section of our podcast to now and from your scholarship to your new role uh, as president of the Autry, um, how these ideas of convergence and an alternative history can be um, translated into the work of the institution you now head. Um, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but maybe you can just tell us um, about the history of the institution. Um, now, I think in its third, fourth decade of existence, um, began um, inspired by uh, the generosity and, and vision of the West of Gene Autry, famously known as the singing cowboy. Um, and yet the institution has grown in many ways and expanded beyond that original vision and incorporates ideas like um, 
convergences and uh, alternative histories of the American West that perhaps were not present at the beginning. So maybe you could just briefly chart the history of, of the institution, which you now had. Yeah, so there's no question that the museum has been saddled with the reputation of being a cowboy museum, in part because it was founded by Gene Autry, as you mentioned, and Gene Autry famously was a singing cowboy and um, you know, famously also played up the notion of a cowboy code, which when you look at it, is mostly a good thing. Um, contrary to the way in which cowboys sometimes have been depicted. Um, but in any case, actually, I think Gene and his wife, and now widow Jackie Autry, um, you know, had a larger vision from the start. They never wanted it to be a museum about Gene Autry. They always certainly were interested in the mythic West, the West of the imagination. Um, but they were always also interested from the start in creating a museum that would not be a vanity museum about Gene Autry and his career. Uh, it was always about the larger larger vision, uh, larger idea, larger possibilities and promise of the American West and its past, uh, and looking to think about what the relationship was between the mythic West and the historical West, between the real and the fictionalized, um, and to take some inspiration from those, uh, from those histories and myths. Um, but they also, as I said, were interested in the wider West and, and, and creating a history that would in, be inclusive of the peoples of the West. And still, though, the, the museum in its first decade of existence was often, I think, unfairly characterized as simply a cowboy museum. And that, in fact, became even more prominent when the Autry in the, at the beginning of the 21st century merged with the Southwest Museum of the American Indian which is the oldest museum in Los Angeles. Uh, the Autry was founded in 1988. Uh, the uh, Southwest Museum dates back to the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, Southwest Museum of the American Indian, which possesses next to the Smithsonian, the probably second largest and most significant collection of Native American materials, Native American arts and artifacts. Uh, and when that merger happened, the press almost always, and still to this day continues, to, I think, characterize it as the meeting and the marriage, the merger of cowboys and Indians, which, as I said, was unfair to both institutions because the Southwest Museum actually was more than just Native American materials and also had significant other collections. But I think in the case of the Autry, the Autry's purposes were always much larger than just being a, quote, cowboy museum. Still, the merger um, done under the leadership of John Gray, then the president and CEO of the Autry, uh, and at the moment where I really came, right around that moment is when I came on board with the Autry and brought the lens of convergence to think about how the mingling and meetings of cultures uh, would transform the West uh, and transform the cultures and peoples here, both in the past and to the present. Um, and I think we moved at that point from being a museum a multicultural museum to one where intercultural, the intercultural dimensions became prominent. And there's where I think the construct of convergence uh, comes to the fore. Um, and that sort of is the dominant vision uh, for the first you know, decade of the 21st century. And then we get to the leadership of uh, W. Richard West Jr., uh, Rick West, who, came to the Autry uh, after being the founding director 
of the National Museum of the American Indian, uh, a museum uh, on the mall, the Smithsonian Museum, that really created a new paradigm for museums, uh, one in which Native peoples challenged the sort of legacy of the colonial museum model, uh, challenged the museum, and really began to, were allowed at the NMAI to speak for themselves and to insist on their, on their continued presence in the present, uh, to not be consigned, uh, to not be consigned to uh, dead artifacts uh, behind vitrines, but to really be out front uh, and still here. Um, and I think that was central to what Rick uh, saw as NMAI's purpose. But when Rick came to the Autry, his goal was not to duplicate NMAI, to just do an NMAI West uh, in the West. Uh, his goal really was to sort of, I think, continue that intercultural dimension, to, to, to continue to foreground the intercultural dimension. I'm not sure he would use the term convergence to describe uh, that, that paradigm, but to really talk about an intercultural museum. Uh, if, if there was an old colonial museum in which Indian artifacts were treated as in anthropological categories, ethnographic categories, NMAI was Museum 2.0 a decolonial museum. Uh, I think maybe Rick would argue that the Autry was maybe Museum 3.0, uh, moving to the next level. Uh, and I guess my tenure will see what 4.0 might look like. Right. So that's the question. What in the wake of your uh, illustrious predecessors remains to be done? Um, which is to say, what is your own vision uh, of the Autry uh, as uh, a major cultural institution in the city of Los Angeles? So I think, you know, look, we build on the, on the foundations left by our predecessors. And in the case, going back to Jackie and Autry and Jean Autry, to Joanne Hale, who was the founding uh, president CEO, to John Gray, to Rick West, um, you know, I fully say that my role is to build on, on what they have, you know, foundations they have created here. Uh, so it's not about that kind of reinvention. Um, I would say, though, that the Autry faces a great challenge, and this is what I've been really pondering, uh, and that is the Autry's mission, which I take very seriously, having spent the better part of my life, certainly most of my professional career, reading, writing, teaching about the history of the American frontier and West, um, the Autry's mission to tell the stories of all peoples uh, in, in the American West and to connect the past with the present to imagine or inspire share our shared future is one that obviously I take very, very seriously. But I also recognize, and this really comes out of my decades of teaching at UCLA. When I ask my students over the last 20, 25 years, whether they think of themselves as Westerners or what the category of American West means to them, they, they rarely see themselves, only very rarely do any of them see themselves as Westerners, despite the fact that most of them, or a good portion of them, are from California and indeed are from Southern California in many cases. But they see the American West and the values and ideas attached to it and the history that's attached to it. They see that as something that's out there and back then. Whereas from my point of view, and obviously from the Autry's mission point of view, and from obviously the Autry's point of view of being a more immediate and relevant institution in the city 
and County of Los Angeles and in Southern California, the fact that people see it as out there and back then and not here and now presents a great challenge to us. And so one thing I'm intent on doing at the Autry in coming years is to reorient our vision of the American West to figuratively, almost even literally, imagine the Autry at the center of the West as we imagine it. Now, that does a couple of interesting, that move does a couple of interesting things. One, from a traditional standpoint, it reconfigures the gaze at which most people look at the American West, that is they face West into the West, that you're, you're sort of moving across the continent. And indeed, what makes it a West is precisely that orientation. And yet the view, what I call the view from here, the view from here has us looking East into what people think of as the American West. Uh, that alone already creates a certain kind of disorientation. That reorientation creates a disorientation that I think makes for a valuable kind of re-imagining. Uh, what does the West look like when you view it not from West to East, but looking, as I say, um, from the West, looking eastward? Um, and we'll see what that leads. I have to confess, I don't actually know. It, unlike convergence, which had been a hallmark of my scholarship, and certainly I intend to you know, keep at the fore of what we do at the Autry in terms of paying attention to the multi and intercultural dimensions of Western history. Uh, in the case of looking eastward, I'm not sure uh, what it will do to how we look at the West. Perhaps more importantly, from my perspective, though, is we look southward and take in the currents coming up from Latin America. We look across the Pacific and take in the currents from that direction. And maybe most important of all, from the perspective of situating ourselves and making ourselves an even more vital institution for the people of California and Southern California, is our foreground, our immediate horizon is Los Angeles, is Southern California, is California, concentric circles outward. And I'm interested in seeing, again, what that makes the West look like. Um, how, if we privilege that immediate horizon, how does that change our view? I certainly hope one of the things that it does is it makes, and this really connects us again to the Luskin Center, it makes the out there and back then much more again here and now. It makes the relevance and the immediacy of the institution that much more obvious and that much more apparent. It makes the connections between past and present easier to draw, easier to connect and easier to think about how does past connect with present and how does it inform our future or how might it inform our future to borrow from Luskin Center language. Right. Well, um, thank you for uh, for mentioning the Luskin Center, um, and we, we very much welcome uh, the future partnership uh, between the Autry and uh, our own center. Um, but by way of conclusion, I want to just follow up on this very interesting idea of geographic disorientation, geographic and cultural, for that matter, disorientation that you mentioned, um, and ask what the particular challenge and perhaps opportunity are for the Autry um, in this moment, this uh, moment of great tumult, and I'm thinking in particular of coming out of the pandemic and um, uh, a year past um, uh, the extraordinary um, uh, racial ferment following the murder of George, George Floyd. Um, in what ways um, does the Autry attend to the here and now, um, you know, in this particular moment of, of great tumult? 
I mean, look, I think that is the great challenge for museums in general. Um, and I think one of, I should have added, one of Rick West's legacies as a museum director is really the insistence on the museum, not he not alone, but he certainly, I think, was a, a principal figure in insisting that museums move away from the older view of themselves as temples, um, you know, in which a priestly class or priestly cast of curators from on high sort of delivered knowledge. Um, and one instead where the museum really positioned itself as a civic and civil forum, a place, um, this is not Rick's phrase, but a place to, a safe place to ask unsafe questions. And I think it's that role that museums uh, can vitally play and that the Autry can particularly vitally play as it positions itself um, in this sort of Los Angeles milieu. I worry, I worry that universities sometimes have, have ceased to be, to take on that role. I think universities certainly too. I think the Luskin Center for History and Policy aspires to that same uh, uh, premise, uh, to be a place where a safe, a safe place to ask unsafe questions. I worry sometimes that the university um, has not sort of, has, has not abdicated that role, but is not sort of owning it in the way it needs to. Um, I hope that museums still do do that, uh, still can be that place where, um, where, as I said, both from a programmatic standpoint, we work that way, but also even from the way in which we create exhibitions, that we do so. And here, our partnership with the Luskin Center for History and Policy on, uh, and this was an earlier episode of the Then and Now podcast, where you talked about this with Tyree Boyd-Pates, one of our uh, curators, um, where he talked about the, um, the Collecting Community History Initiative. And it seems to me that is emblematic of the new way in which museums operate in collaboration with the communities that they are um, curating, in a sense, or that they are uh, creating exhibitions and programs with and around, uh, as opposed to simply kind of dictating from above. Um, and I think it's that collaborative nature that is also crucial. And it's, as I say, one of the reasons why we at the Autry are so excited about that partnership with L LCHP um, going forward. And we're really looking forward to some of the programs that come forward in the fall to see where that Collecting co Community History Initiative has taken us uh, and where it might lead you all in terms of thinking about what's come up from the community and how it informs um, the way in which people look at our histories, recent and deeper, uh, and the ways in which it um, thinks, helps us think about the future. Now, I want to be careful, and this goes back to my own book, if I can, again, uh, engage in a little shameless self-promotion of what was called Can We All Get Along? It still is called An Alternative History of the American Frontier. Not sure what the title will finally be, but ultimately, I think I do come up with a number of, you know, it was very much a book that I think was, I have to say, inspired by working with Meyer Luskin a little bit and thinking about what the project of the Luskin Center for History and Policy would be uh, when we worked together to uh, establish that. Um, you know, that I wanted to think about how the past could really inform the future, what lessons we could take from how people managed to get along against their prior histories. Now, being careful to say that oftentimes these were tenuous arrangements, oftentimes they fell apart, 
very quickly, oftentimes when balances of power and powerlessness shifted, people took advantage of them. Oftentimes they merely diverted or displaced violence onto other people. Um, oftentimes the entrance of states and empires and nations upset local arrangements, uh, contrary to the way in which states and nations and empires often proclaim themselves as being the guardians of peace. That said, it was very much a, um, a project inspired by the Luskin Center. But I also ultimately came down with the conclusion that history is not so prescriptive, that there were no simple prescriptions, right? And I don't expect that the Autry to come up with simple prescriptions either. But if we, along with you, can help to spark a larger public conversation about these issues and about the relevance and possibilities of learning from the past and thinking about our future, then I think as institutions, uh, we've succeeded or we, we've fulfilled our mission. Well, excellent. Uh, on that note, um, we thank you, Steve Aaron. We hope this is the first of many conversations we have as we both chart uh, your new career path as president and CEO of the Austrian Museum um, and our own collaboration between the Autry Museum and the Luskin Center for History and Policy. Um, we wish you the very best in this new endeavor. We know you will stay close to us um, and hope that we can, in fact, uh, vivify and revivify the university such that it answers the call of relevance as well as museums. So thank you, Steve, for making time out of your schedule. You're very welcome. And as I said, I'm very excited to be working with you in the months ahead. Wonderful. And thank you to our listeners uh, for making time out of their schedules. And last but not least, of course, thanks to Maya Ferdman, our executive producer. Have a safe and good day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>